Well, we're studying 2 Timothy chapter 1, and tonight we close out the chapter. The verses that we'll close it out with sound like this in verse 15. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turn away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. If you'll recall back in verse 8 of this same chapter, Paul said, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. There are two things that Paul is encouraging Timothy, or two, two individuals that Paul is encouraging Timothy not to be ashamed about. First and foremost, of course, it's our Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, it's Paul himself. Read along with me from verse 9, just so we can get the context again. Uh, speaking of the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Then Paul says in verse 13, Retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Back in verse 13, when Paul says, retain the standard, he's been speaking about himself and his faithful Lord who's going to reward him at the judgment seat. And it would be exceedingly wise, it would be exceedingly wise for Timothy to follow in Paul's footsteps and to hold fast the pattern or perhaps to retain the standard, might even be better said, of sound theology that Paul taught. In the immediate context, the words sound words refer to the gospel message, but in its broader context, it's the entirety of God's divine self-disclosure to mankind. So last time we saw that Paul had established the pattern, and Timothy was to faithfully follow the model that had been set out for him. Remember, the model had two aspects. It had the truth itself, and then the truth presented in the appropriate manner. Two critical ideas from our study last week. So critical, I wanted to remind you of them this week. Ravi Zacharias, I think, said it best. He said, truth without the undergirding of love makes the possessor of that truth obnoxious, and the truth possessed repugnant. Not only is it Timothy's responsibility and all pastors' responsibility, but not just ours, it's yours as well to speak the truth in love. There is nothing more ugly, more repulsive, to use Ravi Zacharias' terminology, more obnoxious than a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who knows it all and lets you know that he knows it all and, and, and lets you know in a way that's totally unloving. Paul didn't do that. He didn't expect Timothy to do that, and God doesn't expect his messengers to do it, whether it's a pastor from a pulpit or you over coffee with someone. We're to preach the truth. We're to speak the truth in love. In verse 14, parallel with the thought that was just expressed is this idea, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. The treasure, of course, was sound doctrine, sound theology that, that Paul has referred to earlier in this chapter. 
the only thing in my view that should be valued more highly than God's divine self-revelation, God's divine self-disclosure to man is God himself. That self-disclosure is what makes us love God. Sometimes folks from our tradition, I'm talking about the the Bible church tradition, uh, even in some ways the Dallas Seminary tradition, we're accused of being bibliophiles. We just love the Word, and that couldn't be further from the truth. I do love the Word. I love the Word of God, because the Word of God reveals God, whom I ultimately love. So I don't apologize one minute for loving the Word of God, but I'll be the first to tell you, it doesn't stop there. The Word of God teaches us to love the God of the Word, and that's what our responsibility is. And Timothy is urged to guard this deposit. It's important. It's a treasure. You know, we we get safety deposit boxes. We get special accounts that are that are very difficult for anybody to find or get a hold of or, or crack into. We protect we protect our homes with double locks, and and our church has to be protected now because people steal stuff all the time with uh, with elaborate alarm systems. You know what we ought to be most protective of? God's divine self-disclosure. In other words, the Word of God. What He's told us about Himself, we should guard that with our lives. Timothy's urged to guard it. But now he can't do it himself. He can't do it by himself. The only way he's going to accomplish that mission is through the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's that indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit working through Timothy that will allow him to guard and protect that which is so important. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. As we closed last week, we said just a few words about the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that provides the empowerment for the believer in this dispensation to live a life that will glorify God. And then we closed with these ideas. First, the Holy Spirit is a gift. Second, the Holy Spirit was given its salvation. Third, a person not possessing the Holy Spirit is not a believer. We spent a little bit of time last time on how that, that idea is contradictory to, to a great segment of Christianity today that thinks that you can be a believer without the Holy Spirit, that there's a lag time between the time you become saved and the time you actually receive the Holy Spirit. The Bible does not allow for that lag time. And as much as I appreciate him, John Wesley is the one, the, the, the founder of the Methodist Church, but John Wesley is the one that left that door cracked open so that the Charismatics and the Pentecostals of the, of the last century could drive a truck through it. So we need to be care, careful with our theology. The whole, a person not possessing the Holy Spirit is an unbeliever. That's right, straight from Paul in Romans 8 and 9. The Holy Spirit also indwells carnal believers. Just because you sin, just because you become carnal, even if it's a pattern of sin that goes on for quite some time, you don't lose the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells believers permanently. So Paul had established a pattern. Timothy was called upon to faithfully follow that model that had been set out for him by means of this empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. Now, to further impress upon Timothy the need for him to remain faithful to his calling, Paul cites the records of a couple of other individuals who were mutual acquaintances of both Timothy and Paul. Here's where we get to verse 15. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. And then he mentions these two, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. 
Paul is using hyperbole here because he'll mention a man in the next verse that was from Asia that hadn't turned away from him. And Timothy is in Asia, and he hasn't turned away from him. But Paul is in apparently some sort of despair even when he writes this. And in his mind, everybody's turned away from him. At least, and you, you probably use that terminology from time to time. I'm not saying Paul's having a pity party. That's not consistent with the rest of the letter. But he does see, in terms of its general scope, Paul's lost a lot of friends. Paul is, is in a position of great disappointment with certain individuals that used to be his great friends. In fact, we could say that Paul was fairly, thoroughly abandoned at this point. Think of where he is. He's not under house arrest like he was between the years 60 and 62 when he was in his first Roman imprisonment. He is in a dungeon now. Perhaps, traditionally, he was, he was in the Mamertine dungeon just a stone's throw, literally a stone's throw from the Roman Forum and where Julius Caesar was assassinated. If you're a good baseball player, you could throw a baseball from where Paul was held in the Mamertine Dungeon and hit the spot that uh, Julius Caesar was assassinated. That's how close these two places were. They're, they're, very, uh, they're very tight together. And in fact, you couldn't, you couldn't uh, throw a baseball there, but uh, you, could, uh, you could certainly run from the spot, even if you weren't in that great a shape, of course there's a hill, you couldn't run over the hill, but you can run distance-wise from the spot where the Mamertine Dungeon was to the spot where the Circus Maximus was. The Circus Maximus is the place in Rome where Christians were fed to the lions before the Colosseum was built. The Colosseum wasn't built at the time of the Apostle Paul. It came a couple decades after him. But Paul was in this prison, and he was thoroughly abandoned. Not necessarily everybody, but all of his friends in Asia had certainly abandoned him. And then he mentions two specifically. Now, these two men were apparently acquaintances of Timothy that he would have known well. These were people that would not have been expected to abandon the Apostle Paul. You see, it it wouldn't have hurt so bad for Paul if he had expected these two to abandon him. These two, while this is the only time they're mentioned in Scripture, and we can't say a whole lot about it, there's a, a great deal written in the literature speculating as to what their abandonment entailed. But whatever it was, these are two close associates of Paul. And at his greatest hour of need, he leaves, these two leave. Either they leave or don't come to his aid, one or the other. It's been speculated, and again, I think we, we I don't want to spend, I don't want to dwell here a long time because I don't know how we can prove this speculation, but it's been speculated that Paul had called upon Phygelus and Hermogenes to come and testify for him over in Rome, testify for him before Nero when, when Paul has his trial. And it's speculated that Phygelus and Hermogenes refused, assuming that's what it was, and, and that's as good as any in terms of majority view. That seems to be the majority view. But assuming that's what it was, Paul, I'm sure, did feel thoroughly abandoned. For while our Lord, our Lord says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, sometimes even the best of our friends do. The idea of rejection is a very serious problem for all of humanity. And believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are not immune to it at all. Friendship is a wonderful thing. The love between friends and I'm talking about male to male, female to female, the love that exists within a, within a marriage, which is even a more special friendship. Uh, this is, this is a, a, a high thing. It's a, it's a great virtue. It's a wonderful thing. 
Good friends are hard to find, but sometimes rejections take place. We might ask ourselves, even at this point, how is a believer to handle rejection when it happens? I think of two great men of English literature of a couple of decades ago, at least a generation ago, J.R.R. Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis, both very close friends, close friends for years and years. In fact, Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, that has been made so popular even in the last uh, five, six, seven years by the by the movies that have come out, uh, Tolkien was instrumental in leading C.S. Lewis to the Lord. Tolkien, another man by the name of Dyson, but, but Tolkien stayed with him till midnight. I think Dyson's the one that stayed with him till six o'clock the next morning. But Tolkien and Lewis were great friends. In fact, Tolkien himself said that it's very doubtful that the Lord of the Rings trilogy would have been finished if it were not for the encouragement of C.S. Lewis. He didn't work on it for a solid year, and Lewis is the one that encouraged him to get back in that garage that was converted into a study and to work on the Lord of the Rings and finish it because it was well worthwhile. Uh, Lewis, on the other hand, devotes, uh, dedicates his work called the Screwtape Letters to Tolkien. In fact, it was Lewis who was the primary editor of The Lord of the Rings, and Tolkien who was the primary editor of, of the Screwtape Letters. They would, they would read their works to one another, and they, they developed an incredibly close friendship. But then in 1950, a man, a lady by the name of Joy Gresham came into C.S. Lewis's life, first by letter and then by a marriage of convenience, so that Ms. Gresham, who was an American divorcee, former communist, a former Jew who had converted to Christianity, uh, fairly, apparently, fairly abrasive sometimes. Uh, I don't know that the movie Shadowlands properly expresses all that, but, but uh, she comes onto the scene, and I think Lewis marries her in either 57 or 56, one or the other. Well, when Joy comes into uh, C.S. Lewis's life, and I'm not talking about the surprise by Joy, Joy, I'm talking about Joy and Gresham. There's two different things. It just happened to be a coincidence that he wrote the book by the same title. Tolkien was kind of pushed off to the side. And as far as I can tell, for the rest of his life, Tolkien grieved. Of course, the rest of Lewis's life didn't last that long, maybe another three years after Gresham's death in 1960. But the point is that, that two great friends, two friends that, that because of their friendship, we have some incredible writings. There was great disappointment on Tolkien's side of the aisle, at least. I assume there was on Lewis's side, although he never really mentions it, at least nowhere I can find so far. The, the, the first point I want to make is that rejection, abandonment, betrayal, if you want to use that term, and I'm not using that term of, term of Tolkien and Lewis, I'm just using that as an, as an illustration, can happen to anybody. But those are realities. I don't care if you're a believer or an unbeliever, it doesn't matter if you're a believer walking in fellowship with God. Abandonment or rejection by someone that you love is often a reality. I'm not, I'm not saying necessarily a spouse, but it could be a, a friend or a child or, or a, a, a closest associate of some sort. It is a reality, and we need to face that. It doesn't necessarily mean because you've been rejected that you're walking out of fellowship with God or something's wrong with your life. And sometimes it's quite the opposite. So before we can answer the question, how is a believer to handle rejection, we've got to first come to the notion that rejection is a reality. Even if you're walking in fellowship with God, even if you're a maturing believer, rejection is a reality. The second thing that we have to understand is rejection is painful. 
If you've been rejected, if you've been abandoned, if you've been betrayed, and you feel a great inner pain, not, not a pain like a sprained ankle, or even the pain that some of you have felt when you've replaced a joint, which is extremely painful, I know. I, I know that you would trade places any day if it came down to a pain of the heart. Because the pain of the soul is an extremely painful pain. And rejection is painful. I love what C.S. Lewis, I mean, what Francis Schaeffer wrote about this in terms of Christian marriages and rejections and abandonment. Schaeffer said that it is far too common for very good, solid Christian marriages to be abandoned simply because one party or the other wakes up one day and realizes that their partner is not perfect. Schaefer says you should have realized that before you ever got married. That's the reality. But sometimes we start living in a fantasy world, a world of such romanticism. And there's nothing wrong with being a romantic. Uh, there's everything right with that. But don't let it blind you to the fact that, yes, your, your spouse is not perfect. You want me to say it for you? Yeah, she's not perfect. Neither are you, sport. I'll say that for her. None of us are. And, and Schaefer says, too, far too often believers realize, wake up one day and realize that, and then a great marriage, a very functional marriage, a good God-honoring marriage is then destroyed for lack of perfection. The problem is God doesn't promise us perfection this side of heaven. Yes, your spouse is not perfect, and yes, neither are you. And the quicker the both of you could realize that and learn that you have one common denominator, and that's your love in Christ then things are going to be so much better. Because you see, it's the rejection or the abandonment of those that we love that hurts us the most. That's why when a spouse is unfaithful, oh, it's, it's extremely painful. When, when a spouse abandons, enormously painful. I, I think of David and his son Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Apparently Absalom was one of his favorites, and his one of his favorite sons goes after him and tries to kill him. Not just to take the kingdom, but to kill him. That's a rebellion. That had to hurt deeply. I know it hurt deeply. You can tell by some of the psalms that were written throughout that time. So rejection or betrayal or abandonment is a reality. Rejection is painful. And it's the rejection of those that we love, the abandonment of those that we love, that obviously hurts us the most. So what's the solution? I've already mentioned it, but the solution is, that our focus must be on Christ. When we love someone, whether we classify that love as a friendship or as a marriage or whether it's between mother and daughter or father and son or, or whatever the relationship may be, we need, to, we need to love that person in Christ. And that way when that person does inevitably disappoint us. When we look at the relationship that we have that person through the lens of Jesus Christ, we'll realize that while there may not be perfect, our Lord is. And that there will be a time, at least if it's a, another individual who's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, where there will be a time when we'll be in heaven gathered together in a place of perfection. You realize in heaven, you will never disappoint a friend again. Ever. Pete Steigerwald, the former chairman of KHCB, and I and some other folks even in this room were having breakfast one day a few years ago, and we talked about eternity and friendship and, and even the friendship that exists within, uh, within marriages. 
And I remember distinctly Pete said, I don't know what heaven would be like if I didn't get to hug my Shirley Ann every day. Isn't that romantic? That's wonderful. Because Pete was concerned, as if some, some of you have been concerned, that, that the, the scriptures tell us that in marriage, there, in heaven there is no marriage, that we're like the angels, neither, neither marrying or giving in marriage. But I've got to remind you of this. In heaven there are friendships, just like there are friendships here. Those who are your friends here will be your friends in heaven as well. I think it will be a more intense friendship there. It won't be encumbered by our sinful natures. The difference will be we won't have animosity toward anybody. But just as you'll have friends in heaven, you'll have your friend that's your spouse in heaven as well. It won't be the same relationship because on earth, whether we like it or not, there's a, there is this aspect of the marital union that has a leadership structure. In heaven, there won't be any leadership structure. It won't be necessary. Jesus will all be married to Christ. But yes, there will be some relationship there. So the solution is that Christ has got to be our reality, our final integration point. And when that happens, friendship is even more wonderful. The genuine love of a friend is worth much more than material possessions. If you can't agree with that statement, I wonder if you've ever had the genuine love of a friend. But we must love others in Christ. Seeing others the way that God sees them. Recognizing one's essential worth before God. While at the same time recognizing that they have a sinful nature, just like you do. And as soon as you start focusing, as soon as you feel tempted to focus on their imperfections, then go stand in front of that mirror and consider your own. Another thing I wanted to just observe is the desertion of close associates can be damaging. But even that's not outside of God's control. I think back again to the story of David and Absalom and the betrayal that took place there and that chilling that chilling phrase that David heard back from Jerusalem as they were leaving over the Mount of Olives, so across the brook Kidron and over the Mount of Olives, exactly the same route that our Lord would take that night in the upper room when he goes out of the upper rooms. The text says exactly the same thing. He went across the brook Kidron and up the Mount of Olives. The difference is Christ stopped, David kept going. And when he heard the words, Ahithophel is amongst the conspirators. Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. Ahithophel used to be one of David's closest advisors. And David knew he was in a heap of trouble if Ahithophel had gone over to Absalom's side. The betrayal, the abandonment of Ahithophel to David could have been deadly. But then God raised up a little fellow by the name of Hushai. Hushai the archite, who God used to frustrate the counsel of Ahithophel. So even when folks try to rise up against you, and to destroy you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And hopefully, hopefully this is not a spouse or a close friend, but, but if that should happen, like it happened to David, remember that God is still in control, and that he can work it all out for you. And I know I'm speaking to a group of people that almost universally, at one time or another, you have been rejected. At one time or another, you have been abandoned. I'm not, I'm not saying necessarily by a spouse. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not, we're not... But, but I'm saying by a friend, by a loved one, heaven forbid, by a parent. One of, one of the greatest rejections that could ever take place is when a parent rejects a child. I know children do silly things sometimes by, by rejecting their parents, but typically they, they come to their senses at some point in their lives. But a parent's rejecting a child is, is so abnormal. 
Because God the Father, he said, I'm not going to ever leave you. And I hope your children have the, re, have the, the comfort of your love and knowing that even if they mess up, they may have to pay the consequences, but you still love them. I hope they know that. Now, there is a, a contrast. Uh, as opposed to Phygelus and Hermogenes, who leave Paul, who abandon him, who perhaps even betray him at the moment that he needs them the most, there is this man who doesn't. Onesiphorus. Watch carefully what Paul says. He says, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched me and found me. Then he says, The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, for you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. If we were to look at this closely, and then also to what is said at the end of this letter, it looks like, or it seems as though, by the time Paul writes Second Timothy, that um, Onesiphorus is not still living. Because Paul doesn't ask that mercy be granted to Onesiphorus himself, at least at that point. He asks for Onesiphorus' mercy to be granted at the judgment seat of Christ. Later on in the epistle, Paul says to greet the house of Onesiphorus. Don't know what this man did, but I do know that he went to Rome while Phagellus and Hermogenes wouldn't. And not only did he go to Rome, he sought out Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I don't know what Phagellus and Hermogenes said to justify their behavior. I'm sure it was something. I've never sat down with a couple and had one of the two tell me, he says, you know what, I left my wife. I had an affair, if you say why. He says, you know, because I'm just a total jerk. I'm a loser. I'm a jerk. I have, you know, I have no excuse. I'm just a sorry human being. That's why I did it. Never had anybody tell me that. Somebody always comes up with some excuse. You know, she wasn't this. He didn't do that. I was just a, my hormones got old of me. My middle aged crazy. I don't know whatever it was. There's always some excuse. And I'm positive that if you were to have talked to Phygelus and Hermogenes, they would have had some excuse. They would have put window dressing on this thing. They wouldn't have said, if asked, why did you abandon Paul? Of all people, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles. Why did you abandon him? I don't think they were said just because we're cowards. We're cowards. That's, that's why I abandoned him. I was, I'm just a coward. No, I'm sure they said something like, well, you know what? I used to support him. Man, he, he, I, I really did used to care for Paul, but... But I'll tell you what, I got word back that um, maybe, he's, uh, maybe he's a little weak when it comes to that predestination thing. I, I heard about that letter that he wrote to the Romans. I'm not so sure I could buy that part. So you know what, I know he needed help, but I just couldn't help him at this point. And they abandoned him. Everybody's going to make up some excuse, whether you're leaving a friend, whether you're leaving your husband or your wife or whether you're abandoning the Apostle Paul while he's in prison. You're going to do something to make yourself look better. And I'm sure that's what they did. And then we have Onesiphorus, who doesn't abandon the Apostle Paul, who gets on that boat and travels from Ephesus to Rome. And not only travels there, but apparently, it looks like, when he first gets there, there's no sign, there's no newspaper that says, hey, Paul is in the Mamertime dungeon. He has to ask around for him. Anybody heard, anybody heard from Paul? He probably had to go to some of the Christians that were there 
The church had been well established by that time. This is written in probably 67. Paul writes Romans in 57. So they had at least 10 years to develop. Maybe he went to some of the believers there. said, where's Paul? Maybe some of them knew, maybe some of them didn't. They didn't have the internet to search at that point. But he searched him out, and he ministered to him. And he ministered to a man who at that, at that particular point was persona non grata with many of his friends. This is hard to imagine, isn't it? That somebody like the Apostle Paul could be persona non grata. But he was to a certain segment. And if I may, to the cowardly segment of Christianity at the time. But not to this man. When he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me. You know, it would have been one thing for him to come over from Ephesus to Rome and ask a couple of questions. Where's Paul? I'm not really sure. He might be down that way. You go check him over this way. Well, I don't see him. You know what? I did my best. I think I'm going to head on back now. You know? That wasn't the kind of search. He searched till he found him, and then he ministered to him. And we don't know what happens to him. Again, this is one of those places where commentaries speculate. But the greatest speculation is that... An, uh, uh, this man was perhaps martyred, perhaps dies of some illness, but doesn't come back. I would have thought if he was martyred, Paul probably would have mentioned that, you know, in, in this. But, but whatever it was, it doesn't look like he came back. He was a faithful servant that went to minister to the Apostle Paul, and he might not have come back. I don't know what ministry he had in Ephesus, but I'm sure somebody like that was being used greatly of God. But, he didn't, but, but God felt like his ministry to the Apostle Paul was more important at that point. And somebody else, I'm sure, stepped in the gap. Timothy, I'm sure, was one of them. Now, the, the word Lord is used twice there, that the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord. It very well could be that one of those is God the Father, the other one is God the Son. I, I assume the first one is God the Father, the second one is God the Son, because it mentions the judgment seat of Christ, to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And then he mentions again, you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. So he was being used at Ephesus, he'll be used over there. I want to just say, I've only got a couple minutes to go, but I want to say just a couple of things about the idea of this man before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul, when he's writing his thank you note to the Philippians, and in, in many ways that's what Philippians is, it's much more than that, but, it, but it's at least a thank you note to them for the support that the Philippians had given them. And at the end of the book of Philippians, if you'll recall the, the, when we studied that, I know it's been some several years now, but I hope you haven't forgotten this part, that, that Paul considers the Philippians to be ministry partners with him. Those who supported Paul, those who prayed for him, and those who gave him financial offerings. Paul says, you shared in my ministry. And he says, I, I really, I'm so looking forward to the profit that was rendered to your account. He says, it wasn't so much me, because Paul knew the Lord was going to take care of him. But Paul was excited that the Philippians had helped him because they would have this accrued to them. That's why it's so important for a church to be missions-minded. That's why it's so important for you as an individual to be missions-minded. It doesn't mean you have to go on the mission field. Many people are not called to be on the mission field. There are people on the mission field who ought not be on the mission field. I mean, it messes things up. But those who are there, if you pray for them, if you give them financial support, if when they're home on leave, if you put your arm around them and let them know that you're praying for them, if you buy them a meal, 
if you show them some hospitality, you have shared in their ministry. And then when they go back to whatever country it is that they go back to, as you're praying for them daily that the Lord would protect them and open doors for them, do you realize you'll share in that blessing at the judgment seat of Christ in the same way that um, Onesiphorus will share in the blessing of the Apostle Paul on that day because he went and ministered to Paul. I don't know what he did. Maybe he just brought him a cup of water. Maybe he just, maybe Paul just handed him his clothes outside the window and he went and washed them and brought them back. I don't know what service he provided. It's not important. But the point is, he did provide the service. And even when he was at Ephesus, Paul reminds Timothy, you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. This may have nothing to do with teaching. You know, that's not the only thing you get blessed for at the judgment seat of Christ. I hope you remember that. So there's the positive side of it. But the implication from this text is, and this is scary. I hate to end with a scary note. Maybe I'll throw a positive statement in at the end. I think that would be a better homiletic technique. But the scary part is that Phygelus and Hermogenes, I'd hate to be them. Now, I, I wouldn't hate to be them in the sense of them losing their salvation. There's no indication of that. And these Phagellus and Hermogenes, I'm convinced that they were believers. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been a big deal that they would have abandoned Paul. You'd expect an unbeliever to have abandoned him. But they're going to lose out on blessing at the judgment seat of Christ because they abandoned Paul when he needed them the most. Sometimes we get scared. All of us do. All of us have this idea of self-preservation. But I can't think, I can't help but, but think back to something even like the Battle of the Alamo. One of my favorite battles in all of uh, military history, although my side lost that battle. But there was, a, there was a great victory that really came out of it as well. But i never forget William Barrett Travis, who I think was only about 26 years old at the time. Bowie and Crockett were about 50. I could see why there was animosity between the two, between the three, actually. I remember that night, though, that Travis takes, the, takes his sword and draws the line in the sand right out in front of the chapel. Anybody who's with me, anybody who wants to stay, come on over. Anybody who doesn't want to stay, go. There's one man that didn't want to stay. He left, and he made it out. And everybody at the Alamo, all 183 of them, died. All the 183 men died. Mrs. Dickinson got out, along with a slave and a couple children, I think. And that one fellow got out. I'm not sure how long he lived, maybe 10 years, maybe 15. I remember it wasn't that long. And then he died, too. Now, for all eternity, for all eternity, he's the guy that ran away at the Alamo. Now, if he's a believer, we're not going to say anything to him about it. (laughs) Unless we can get special permission. (laughs) But the point is, for all eternity, you're going to remember David Crockett going down swinging, in spite of what that Mexican sergeant's diary said. I choose to believe Mrs. Dickinson's diary. He went down swinging in front of the Alamo, in front of the chapel, while this other fellow ran scared. Hermogenes and Phygelus may have lived several more years because they abandoned the Apostle Paul. Onesiphorus may very well have died in Rome. It it looks something happened to him because he went and ministered to him. But I'll tell you what, when it comes to eternity, I'd a whole lot rather be Onesiphorus.